why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. John F. Kennedy gave his speech at Rice University about going to the moon and launching the entire Apollo program. If we didn't take those kinds of risks, there wouldn't probably be a space shuttle, a space station, have the opportunity to potentially have our, our children taking rides into space. And then think of all the technologies that have spawned off of the space program at computers and you know, phones and GPS systems. Unless you're willing to take on those kinds of risks, you'll never really push the boundaries of technology and develop those game-changing capabilities that we're looking for. This is Mike Swanson. He's currently Skunk Works chief engineer and was previously the program manager on many projects. This episode of the podcast is all about Skunk Works' relationship with risk. Skunk Works engineers have a willingness to take on projects that most others wouldn't because the chances to succeed are too small or too difficult. Throughout the Skunk Works history, there's been this idea that we're out there pushing the boundaries and taking risks. I mean, even the formation of Skunk Works with the development of the XP-80. At the time, Lockheed was fully engaged in producing Hudson bombers and P-38s. I mean, they had the Burbank factories completely filled up. Even Kelly Johnson starting the Skunk Works was a risk itself. But you know, he had no resources, right? He had to set up his own little shop on the side of the you know, Burbank factory. I think that the thing that impressed me the most when I first joined the Skunk Works was the culture here. My first design job was working on the uh, JASM cruise missile. And it was literally, I'd, I'd been a designer for maybe two years and they put me in charge of the, the whole wing assembly for this production program. I think that was something that is instilled in the culture here that we provide an environment where we ask a lot of these younger engineers to step up and take on responsibility, make their own decisions. Along with that though, uh, especially back to my experience with the JASM program, is that we had senior level leads that kind of provided that mentoring, oversight, you know, make sure we didn't stray too far off of the tracks in one direction. We're gonna have uh, setbacks and issues, and as long as you're learning from those setbacks and moving forward, it's okay. I've had, obviously, my fair share of uh, setbacks where I wasn't uh, bludgeoned to death or anything for making a bad decision, and. As a matter of fact, it was usually the opposite. It was like, okay, you know, pick yourself up. What happened? How do we learn from this? So I think encourage people to learn from their mistakes is, is part of that, that risk-taking. Even though we're willing to go out and, and take those risks, really spend time understanding what the risks are, taking calculated risks. Understand where we have uncertainties and do testing where it makes sense. 
And then for the other items that have more certainty um, we've done before, we'll tend to try to do everything we can to not increase any undue risk in those areas. So we use a lot of off-the-shelf hardware for those reasons. But the landing gear, you know, we use from, from existing platforms. We didn't want to, that's a very complex, costly system. You don't want to redevelop if you don't have to. We wanted to spend all of our time, in the case of the M117, focusing on the stealth attributes. X-35, it was obviously about the shaft-driven lift fan and the, and the short takeoff vertical landing capabilities. And I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, listen to the people around you. Really leverage your team's experience and knowledge and diversity to try to help you make the best decision that you can. Whenever you're pushing up against the edges, every once in a while you're going to cross over, right? I rely a lot on you know, my experience, the experience of the folks on my team. So many different projects are born in the Skunk Works that at first blush you look at it and you go, well, that, that'll never work. And even on X55, and my first reaction is we can't do that in the time that he, they gave us. But then we thought through it and came up with a solution. So I think definitely having a, an open mind. Don't just initially assume that something can't be done. Figure out what it takes to get it done. Be stubborn and, and hang on to that in the face of the folks that are coming out saying it can't be done. Mike Swanson was previously the X-55 program manager. X-55 is also known as ACA, an advanced composite cargo aircraft. The entire aerospace industry was challenged to develop a large transport-sized all-composite uh, cargo plane in less than two years. Really, the enabling technology for that was being able to use these large, out-of-autoclave bonded composite structures. And at the time, you know, we had never really attempted to do anything of that size before. Like I said, given the, the schedule, you know, we literally had to design the airplane at the same time. We're inventing this new material process and doing testing and building the parts. So that, that was kind of the, the miracle for X-55. You know, what we did to minimize other miracles is we reused like, you know, things like the landing gear, the wing, the cockpit flight station from a Dornier 328 regional jet. It was all about that large composite structure and how quickly could you build it, how affordably could you build it. The thing that really makes me excited to come to work every day is, is especially now with all the projects we got going on, but just seeing these highly motivated, dedicated teams working towards a common goal and seeing something evolve from an initial concept that's you know, half the time you know, sketched out on a napkin or a piece of paper, watching that thing evolve into you know, a, a mature design and then going out on the shop floor and watching the things being built and then seeing it being tested and ultimately seeing it fly. There actually is a pretty standard ADP system engineering risk management process. Fundamentally, it provides a framework for how you assess or score risks, you know, based on the probability of something occurring and the consequence if it does occur. Included in that risk management process is also the mechanism by which risks are surfaced up to program leadership. Typically on a program, you have a risk management board that would meet every couple of weeks. I mean, it just kind of depends on the, the nature of the program that's usually chaired by either the deputy program manager or the chief engineer, and then the, the various project leads are represented. And that's really the forum for kind of raising 
risks to the board and determining whether it's something that should be added as an official risk that we develop a mitigation plan to and assessing it, whether it's a high risk, medium risk, or low risk. And I gotta tell you, I mean, there's a lot of discussion and debate that goes on in those meetings because you don't, you, there's, you don't wanna have every worry beat or hard engineering problem that comes to the, to the board show up as a risk. I mean, otherwise you'd be tracking hundreds of risks and there's this process to help kind of cull it down to what are the major risks. A lot of it is just, again, leveraging the team's experience. That's kind of the formal process. Informally though, the programs that are good at managing risks will have either the system engineering organization or the leads kind of constantly asking questions of the team to determine where there might be some risk. On a day-to-day -day basis, they're just kind of working through an issue that you know, they don't think too much of, but when you kind of take a step back, look at, oh wow, you know, if we don't solve this, this really could be a big problem. We need to raise that up. We should be always willing to embrace concerns, issues, risk from our team. If people are afraid to surface issues or concerns, then you lose one of those fundamental mechanisms for surfacing risk to the program leadership. So you always learn more through failure than you do from any success you have. Hundreds of successes don't equate to a single failure that you've experienced. This is Colby Rowe. She's a conceptual design engineer. I definitely have failures, there's no question. My love of engineering, I, I've seen pictures of me when I was two years old taking apart a, a radio trying to figure out how it worked because it was broken, right? It, it, it's always been there. But when I got older, I, I remember my grandfather would always bring me whatever electronics broke. He would bring me to, to take apart, a, you know, I had a soldering iron and all those things to fix loose electrical connections. That, that's what I did. Failure is an option in everything we do, right? Driving your car to work, you can get in an accident. That can be seen as failure. But that doesn't stop you from getting in your car and driving to work. So I think those, those failure mechanisms can exist in everything we do. And risk and failure go hand in hand, right? So any company that's willing to take on risk is willing to accept some level of failure. Through that, you end up with individuals that learn from their mistakes and don't make them again. As a population, you grow a higher quality of engineers, a higher quality of individuals, and a higher quality of leaders. I've had an opportunity throughout my career here where I've been given opportunities to take on stretch positions, try things that I didn't know if I could do. And I think that's really important and valuable from a Skunkworks perspective because you never know what a person can do until you give them an opportunity to stretch themselves as well as leadership here giving people those opportunities because it goes both ways. Individuals don't always know what they can handle until you push them out of their comfort zone. And likewise, as a leader, you don't know what an employee can truly do until you give them a task you don't think they can accomplish, right? And, and more times than not, they surprise you. Seeking out that next opportunity, that next thing, you need to be able to put your employees in positions where they can surprise you. Programs where people thought that only experienced engineers could execute them, we had about a 50-50 mix successfully produced aircraft. So I had that opportunity on, on ACA where we had about 50% of individuals that had never worked in aircraft before and 50% that had, and they were able to execute the build of that aircraft. 
there's always been a rich tradition of individuals learning from and listening to their mentors, their teachers. But there's also a willingness of not being afraid to speak up against their mentors or their teachers. Respectfully, everybody has the right here to respectfully disagree with anyone or anything. And on all my teams, we encourage that because you will always find the issues, no matter what. The question is, when do you find them, right? Oftentimes they come much later. In the Ben Kelly example, Ben went after Have Blue and ultimately F-117 program. He disagreed with Kelly. Kelly thought he was crazy for pursuing the stealth technology and, and that aircraft would even need stealth in the future. And at the time, the company was in financial distress. So really, Ben was going in with, with everything he had and getting the company to buy into Have Blue and pursuing that. And so he had to stand up and go against his mentor's advice and, and pursue what he felt was was the right path forward for the Skunk Works. And in the end, he was correct, and it paid off. Skunk Works engineers practice something called spin sessions, basically brainstorming sessions with engineers from various backgrounds. For unique problems, and you would bring in a mix of individuals, young individuals that just started in the, the workforce, right? Not, not even from different companies, I mean, just right out of school, all the way up to very seasoned and experienced individuals, because as you talk about the problem, people see it from different perspectives and are able to bring forth new ideas and new options that somebody with experience may have disregarded because they thought it couldn't be done. Whereas a new engineer doesn't know it can't be done and then throws it out and through that conversation recognizes there's different ways to approach the problem that, that result in an achievable solution. One of the first steps in creating an aircraft is conceptual design. This is where a design can be creative and risky, but of course all within the parameters of physics. Yeah, there's a saying, if it looks right, it flies right, at least in aerospace. A good example of a violation of that is the F-117, right? It doesn't look right, but it does fly okay, thanks to some very serious engineering and flight control systems. We do live by that. Like, that's the number one principle of, hey, just, just step back from the engineering, look at it. Does anything look wrong? Right? That, that should be your first gut check. If something looks wrong, go back and check your math. Because if it looks right, it should fly right. The conceptual designer tries to balance the requirements with a design. That could take a, a mere couple weeks. It could be a back of a napkin sketch, right, and half a day's work to come up with the basis, and, and you have something at the end of a day that's very, very top level. I mean, you don't have a lot of analysis on there, but you have napkin math kind of thing. A product will simply evolve at a very slow rate if you're not willing to take risk. With risk comes jumps in technology. iPhone's a good example. Phones prior to that point in time were just evolutions. Phones since the iPhone came about have just been kind of a, an evolution of what's out there. But the iPhone in and of itself was made not because there were a bunch of people out there wanting the iPhone, right? Somebody said, this is what I would want to buy as a consumer, and so I think we need to try to make it. 
and they they went down the path of risk. Here, you see a lot of that in in looking for the you know next 20 years, next 50 year type opportunities, products. People want to solve those problems yet to be solved. People that really kind of gravitate towards Skunk Works, I think are really trying to solve issues and problems that we don't even know we have today, right? And, and come up with products that haven't even been, been imagined, let alone thought about. Risk is the only way to get there, because if you you're not willing to accept risk, you're not willing to accept the possibility of, of large advancements. You're also not willing to accept failure, right? Which means your population isn't going to be evolving, learning, growing at the pace that it needs to to be able to come up with those technologies that are many, many years out. You can work a problem for a long time and to a great extent, but at some point, you just have to go do it. You have to attempt that first flight. This is Atherton Cardi. He's the director of technology roadmaps at the Skunk Works. You know, I grew up on the East Coast, in a small farm town, so far, far away from, from Burbank, California, and the cradle of aerospace here in Southern California. I certainly was bitten by the aviation bug. I certainly loved airplanes. I knew what I wanted to do. I worked very hard in school. Didn't necessarily come easy to me, but, but, I, but I had a goal and I stuck to the goal. And when I had the opportunity to join the Skunk Works team, which was at an, another real peak in our company's activity and performance about 20 years ago, it didn't take very long for me to realize that this culture was one that I could be very much at home in. Now that you've done everything you feel you can do and you understand you're taking a risk and you don't know up front what the outcome is going to be, you need to be prepared to react in either case. So you need to know what you're going to do if you're successful and how that sets your course for next steps. You also have to know and understand how you're gonna react if you fail and recognize that failure, even though it's, it's almost become a, a four letter word, it seems sometimes in society today, failure is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn, it's an opportunity to better yourself and, and to come all the closer to achieving what you were trying to achieve in the first place. I think it's easy to say we're failure tolerant, we accept failure, we're willing to take that challenge, we're willing to accept that risk, but when it all comes down to having to react to a failure, how you react as an organization and as a leadership structure permeates throughout the entire organization. When we fail, oftentimes that's a surprising event to an individual psyche, and I think that it's, it's a sometimes a even a traumatic event to an individual psyche. It's important that calmer heads prevail. Intelligent and cool-headed asking of questions, dialogue, desire for finding facts, desire for understanding, versus some kind of an accusatory or scapegoating kind of behavior, which is very destructive, but at the same time, very natural and very human. We all live our lives and have been in those situations where we're faced with those kind of decisions and faced with how we're going to react. And I think that the, the trick is, to some extent, you have to put yourself in that kind of situation. You can't enter into an emergency situation and just trust that you're going to make the right decisions under stress. Uh, you have to train yourself to make those right decisions and you have to condition yourself to look at the problem critically make the right choices at the right time. So that's one of the things that I think we try to do 
um, institutionally as a, as a habit is we try to put ourselves in challenging situations that come about from challenging problems that we're taking on, forcing ourselves uh, to, again, make the right decisions so that um, when those situations arise, it's not the first time we've seen them. When a given leader is faced with that situation, they've been exposed to that kind of environment before, either in a leadership position or as a member of the team. And I think that's the type of thing that ensures that the right decisions get made at the right time. I think the harder the problem that you're able to surmount, the sweeter the victory when it finally all comes together. Some of the teams that had the longest putts, the hardest problems to solve, the most impossible achievement to take on and, and to complete, those are the ones that are held in highest esteem, but those are also the ones where folks that were on those teams have the sweetest memories of how good it felt. Being able to learn from your failure is the important part. You, you definitely don't want to try to fail. However, I say that with you know a bit of a smile because we have built vehicles that we knew were going to crash because we wanted to go experiment out at the very edge of the envelope. Again, this is Ed Burnett, Lockheed Martin Senior Fellow. It's always fun to get a, a manager and, and sit them in a the room and say, no, crashing is success. There's a phenomenon that occurs with flying wings, particularly long, thin wings with a center fuselage that has mass. So the type of vehicle that you'd want to use for a high altitude reconnaissance aircraft of the future. So as we looked at these vehicles, this phenomenon was really limiting the performance of our designs. And Flutter has been around for many, many decades. We think we understand it, but it's one of those things where it's really hard mathematically to fully grasp. So we, we wanted to look at what could we do. Very similar to the thought process we did on X-35 where we said flight controls and propulsion are integrated together. Well, now we wanted to look at the aeroelastics and flutter group and flight controls and bring them together and integrate them to try to find a, a common solution for this phenomenon called flutter. We now deal with it by adding material to our airplane. We will increase the stiffness and strength of our airplane so that we don't have any flutter issues. And then we do our flight test. That's one of the big things we're looking for as we go higher and faster is making sure that we don't see any, any flutter on the vehicle. Well, we wanted to take a new approach. We wanted to say, if we can sense it, maybe we can suppress it. So we built these little vehicles to show we could sense it, that the desire was to actually take them to the point where they would break apart in midair, because that's where the next piece of knowledge was that we needed. We called them BFF, stands for Body Freedom Flutter, often is confused with Best Friends Forever. And we, we literally flew them to the point where they would break apart in midair. First few vehicles, we were able to predict the phenomenon's occurrence. And then some of the vehicles, four, five, and six, and seven, we actually were able to show that we could suppress some of the phenomenon. So this little tiny vehicle that had the phenomenon occurring at 46 knots would break apart about 50 knots. We flew a couple of the vehicles over 75 knots. And you know that's a, that's a big game changer.
the, the insight that we got from that allowed us to extend the capability of a next level of technology. It brought forth a larger vehicle that uh, NASA is now flying, doing experimentation. And that hopefully will allow us to develop programs in the future that weigh less, that have much more efficiency, that, that, that can fly higher and further and faster than, than they can if they don't have these technologies applied. And it's those different technologies that, that really allow us to move different directions for the, the future of aircraft. It sounds strange to embrace risk, but often that's where the next piece of critical information will come from. I've got a little soft spot for the F-117. I dressed up as it for Halloween. Did you know that? <laughs> Louise Moores is an electrical engineer here at the Skunk Works. It's kind of overwhelming to be a skunk, to come into this legacy of the skunk works and almost presumptuous to think that I am good enough to be a skunk. Decades ago, footage of these planes taking off and they're still the, the fastest, they're still the best, they're still the coolest. You know, all these aerospace nerds, they love our planes still. And I get to be a part of that. I mean, it's, it's a bit silly. Every step of the way, I just hope that I can add to that legacy. I take risks all the time, and I took a risk moving out here. I loved my life, and my job was fine. And I thought, you know what? I'm not, I'm not cool with fine. I want badass. I want a badass job. And out I came to Palmdale, right? And that's terrifying. It's a desert. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's far from... LA where everyone, you know, everyone dreams of moving to LA. Well, we're not, we're not in LA, we're in Palmdale. And you have to kind of think, all right, why, why would I go there? Why, why is this worth that risk? And you step in and honestly, I've been here just over a year and every single day, I am like validated in taking that risk. Leaders, just trust you. You are a skunk to them, and they trust that. You may not have that much experience, but they say, you know what? I believe in your potential. And honestly, the network of skunks that we have here, I mean, they're geniuses. They're so smart, and they're so willing to help. I can't imagine what a phenomenal engineer I'm going to be because I have these geniuses feeding into my knowledge base every single day and saying, hey, we trust you. Take that risk. You know, why don't you lead it on your own? Why don't you try it? Like, trust yourself. And when you get that allowance, you find out that you know way more than you thought, right? And obviously we make mistakes, right? But they say fail early, fail often, and they kind of embrace it. Like, cool, found out one way it doesn't work, next. I think most, most of my failures so far, that's such a strange thing to admit to, right? Most of my failures so far have been little ones. Uh, design phase ones. And, and that's what you want, right? You want to put it all on paper and the more on paper, the less in real life those mistakes are, the better. I've made, you know, silly, silly errors here and there, huge errors here and there. You can misstep any step of the way, right? Engineering's really kind of hard, <laughs> but 
you catch it. And as soon as you catch it, you raise the alarms and you gather your team and you say, hey, I think this isn't going to work. Am I right? Am I right that it's wrong? And everyone goes, oh, shoot. Yep. Yep. That's wrong. And then we fix it and you move on. And no one says, who decided that? (laughs) No one blames anyone. We just go, cool. Now our system's better. So I'm an electrical engineer and... We were working on lighting, lighting on, on the airship. And, you know, you have to route these copper wires to one light bulb about 300 meters. And that's a really, really long piece of copper that's pretty much just a lightning rod. <laughs> it's just a lightning rod waiting to happen. And that's not good because um, the envelope of an airship is fabric and you don't want that to burn up and rip a hole through what you know 80% of why you're flying is all that helium right so you know we were thrown out ideas about power over fiber optics and that's that's a mind-blowing idea right that's that's on the cusp that cutting edge of technology there is such a thing as power over fiber optics there's a lot of research going into that that basically you can use little light beams to somehow power components at the end of it that's insane right that's a mind-blowing phenomenon but the, the capabilities of it right now are so small. It's really, really low wattage. Um, and maybe, maybe that could work for just one light bulb, right? But then, you know, we kind of got into this brainstorming session about what if we don't convert it to power? What if we just use fiber optic light, right? So how, how can we get, you know, a bunch of splayed fibers at the end with, you know, a little tiny beam of light at you know, at the end of these fibers, and can we, you know, put that through a lens and radiate that into an acceptable level of light? And I mean, just just that whole process of breaking the rules. I mean, does the FAA know what they think about power over fiber optics or or fiber optic driven lighting? No, because it's never been done before. But we were like, hey, let's be the first. Let's try it. Let's patent that. Let's, you know, let's dive into that. And that's like what Skunkworks is all about, right? We throw around the word skunky a lot, and it's almost used as an excuse. We can bend rules uh, because we know what rules can be bent, and we know what technically we can get around and what technically we need to honor. And that allows us to build products that work, but break the rules of, of the infrastructure. We keep saying, well, we're skunks, right? We can do it that way. Let's try it this way. Why do we have to follow the rules? And it's that that risk-taking kind of beautiful side of everyone here that keeps us here. Yeah. So I think inherent in human psyche and human DNA is we are a very aspirational kind of creature. We explore and we push the bounds. And inherent in that is, is risk. Inside Skunkworks is produced inside the Skunkworks. Our next episode will be available in two weeks. Stay tuned for a sneak peek. For photos of skunks with badass jobs, check out our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunkworks. And so we go way beyond 3,000 degrees, 4,000 degrees. 
we're going all the way up, eventually, to 200 million degrees. Way hotter than the sun by about a factor of 10. At some point, it stops putting out light because it's so hot it doesn't spit out light in the visible anymore. 